Today's scripture reading is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. In the Pew Bible, it is on page 839. That's Mark 4, 35 through 41. Mark 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Reed Ferguson, um, many of you have, have heard Reed before, but some of you have not, and let me tell you, you are in for a treat. Uh, Reed has, Reed's got a, a, a special uh, character and characteristics about him that, that uh, allow him to, he, he's so knowledgeable, he knows great excerpts of the early church fathers and uh, in limericks too. He knows, you know, just the, his, his knowledge really is not only broad, but it's deep. And that comes out. But not only has he got a broad and a deep knowledge of the things of God, he's a pastor. And that comes out. And it will. You'll see it. When he, when he speaks to you, the pastor's heart will touch yours. So with no further ado, I'd like to invite Reed up here to give us a message. Well, I, I don't know who sinned more, Richard in saying those words or me in enjoying them. <laughs> well, uh, we'll see how that all goes before we're done, huh? Uh, if you do have your Bibles open, keep them open to uh, Mark chapter 4. And I pray you've enjoyed this unusual, unusually sweet time in worship this morning as much as, as I have. Uh, never let these moments where the Spirit just seems so palpable go by without acknowledging how great His grace is that He allows us to come and worship Him together. Uh, what a great God He is. Uh, there's a, a wonderful book I've read in short version maybe four or five times and this last year went through a fresh in uh, in its full uh, figure and it's uh, J.C. Ryle's wonderful little book Holiness it's nature hindrances difficulties and roots uh, those older guys like to put a lot into their titles um, and he makes this observation so I'm going to start with this rather long quote bear with me uh, it's worth it he says, it would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. 
No doubt all scripture is profitable. It's not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It's well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it's far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face and to behold his beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ himself. Now, the Gospels were written to make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Ghost has told us the story of his life and death, his sayings and his doings four times over. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Savior. His ways, his manners, his feelings, his wisdom, his grace, his patience, his love, his power are graciously unfolded to us by four different witnesses. Ought not the sheep to be familiar with the shepherd? Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride to be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior? Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. The Gospels were written to make men familiar with Christ, and therefore I wish men to study the Gospels. That's, that's good stuff. Um, he was... Uh, one of my one of my all-time heroes but it's in that spirit of what he just wrote what we just read that I'd like to turn your attention today to this really familiar account that you have in the gospel of mark uh, you all know it the facts are pretty straightforward it was a really busy day for jesus teaching and he was teaching by the sea to a very large crowd the text tells us Verse 1 even says that he did this while he was sitting in a boat, hence the title of my message, uh, A Boatload of Lessons. Uh, it was there that he taught the famous parable of the sower, which he explains is about the propagation of the gospel being like planting seed. Uh, spoiler alert uh, for some of you, it is not about sending seed money into ministries in order to make money back. Um, that, that's not the parable of the sower, even though you may have heard that somewhere. Um, then he went on to talk about how nothing is hidden that will not one day be revealed and how each of us who hear biblical truth are responsible for, what, for having heard it and what we do with it. It can't just go in one ear and out the other. It must have some sort of effect in us, uh, a response to it. And then he gives another farming parable having to do with the word of God and how it produces fruit in people's lives. And in verse 33, we read this, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. So this was a, the standard way that he communicated, uh, at least in these larger preaching contexts. And then our text picks up in verse 35, that on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, to his disciples, 
Let us go across to the other side. Now the rest of the story, again, most of you would know pretty well. Uh, Jesus is tired, it's been a long day, and he falls asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat, and there are a, a number of other boats accompanying them. You'll see that as the text progresses. And then this fierce storm arises, and it's so fierce that these seasoned fishermen that are his disciples felt sufficiently threatened enough to rouse him from his sleep and ostensibly to help them control the ship, to help them do, in other words, what they were already doing. We're going to come back to that point. A lot of our prayers are aimed that way. We just want God to help us already do what we're doing. Um, that may not be the best approach, but it's what they were doing at the moment, and they, and they do it actually quite accusingly. Uh, as though he'd been neglectful out of some lack of care or other. Uh, and again, we'll come back to that. But it's then that he awakes and he stands and he makes that, that famous pronouncement, peace be still. And the waves stop and the wind ceases and everything gets calm. And then he addresses his disciples because of their lack of faith at this particular moment. At which point, the text says they were filled with great fear and wondered to each other just exactly who this is, that even the wind and the sea obey him. And that's, that's the right question. Who is this that could possibly stand up and cause nature to come under his command? So what I'd like to do in our time together, and I plan to be not as long as usual, ha, um, is to point out just uh, seven phrases in this account. It's a short account, but I want you to just pick up some of the phrases that are there and then make some observation on those phrases and then at the end bring it back around and make four short applications to prayer. Because uh, sometimes these simple phrases get by us uh, and they're there for a reason. God doesn't speak superfluously, but we'll come back to that. So verse 35, we read these simple words, when evening had come. I take that as an extraordinary reminder that God is not working at the end of any given day. It's wonderful to me that evening had come, but Jesus hadn't punched out at five, even though he was asleep in the stern of the boat. He never punches out. Psalm 121 reads, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth, who will not let your foot be moved, who keeps you and will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And not only is that true in terms of administrating his universe and the providential circumstances of our lives, but he has not done working in us at the end of long and tiresome and maybe days when we've failed. Days of weak faith. He's still at work. Though we grow weary and tire, 
he never does, not the same way. And even if he were weary, it wouldn't prevent his help. Remember how on the night of his passion, he washes the apostles' feet? Then he takes time to instruct them about what that's all about, and then he encourages them, and he prays for them, and he, and he commits their care and our care into the hands of the Father in the garden. In the, in the natural, that night, no doubt, Jesus was, was weary enough to die of weariness itself, but he never slows his hand, not for a moment, concerning his own. Even on, the, even on the cross, he commits the care of his mother to John, and he takes the time, if you can imagine this, to forgive the repentant thief that's dying beside him and, and promising to take that thief with him to paradise before the very day is out. Jesus is never been too weary or too distracted in any way or unaware or unconcerned about a single thing that affects his children. This is our Christ. They cried out to him, don't you care? But he was asleep, but he wasn't unaware. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31 reads, have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him that has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our days come to an end, and at the end of them often we are weary and worn and perhaps discouraged and overwhelmed, but the night is just like the day to him, and he is inexhaustible. As Psalm 139 reads, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the dark Darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. On that day when evening had come, great and glorious things about him were about to be revealed. Our great Savior is not done working at the end of the day, any day. And so he said to him, when evening had come, the text reads, Things weren't over yet. Then also in verse 35, it says, the second phrase, he said to them. Now, it's good to remember that God never speaks superfluously. He never makes small talk. Isaiah 55, 11 reads, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's always good to remember that nothing is in the Bible just to be there. Uh, the label on my magnesium supplement, which I take every morning, says underneath the ingredients, no fillers. Well, that's your Bible. There's no fillers. He didn't write anything down just to write it down or just to fill up the, the, the pages of the book. 
Everything he has said, he has said with eternal purpose in mind. We may not understand that purpose all at once. Some of the portions of the Old Testament you go through and you scratch your head and you say, okay, so they brought 12 carts and the carts had how many plates and the, they had snuffers and they had spoons and they had chargers and okay, but there's a reason behind it. We might not grasp it all yet, but he never speaks superfluously. God never just prattles on and Jesus saying these simple words to them let's go across to the other to the other side wasn't just small talk he wasn't just making a suggestion it was uttered by the lips of the one who spoke the worlds into existence whose word made the universe come into being his simplest word is so reliable everything he says has to be regarded with the weight of a divine decree. Don't let his words slip by you ever. So here, this simple phrase, let us go to the other side, ought to have meant to them, we're going to go to the other side, no matter what. Let's go. It carried no less weight than the let there be light of Genesis 1-3. And no less weight than Lazarus come forth when he stood beside the grave of his fallen friend. Or it has no less weight than Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or Matthew 28.20, that lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, Lazarus come forth wasn't a suggestion or a mere invitation. It was a cosmic command, and as such, it overcame death itself. And let us go to the other side was God speaking, and they should have known because who, of who he is that they were going to the other side, and there were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But you see, we don't find out till the end of this little story. They had no grasp of who he really was. But we're this side of the cross. We do know who he is and, and we can hear his word and we can take every bit of it with all of its full authority. And how often, I don't know about you, but I know about me, how often does my own faith flag because I've not completely rested in the words of the Savior? Maybe you've known that failure too his promise to complete the work he's begun in me, sometimes can seem empty and far off and unreal. But it's his promise. And he can't fail. It's as inviolable as the very word that upholds the whole creation in its existence. It's extraordinary. The third phrase you want to see is in verse 36. Again, you might cast this off, but don't. They took him with them in the boat. The third lesson is just as profound as it is simple. If we walk with him, we may rest assured that he is really and truly present with us. Both in the most mundane things and in the darkest and most dangerous of trials. Doesn't he remind us that of himself in, in Luke 12, 6, where Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? 
Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you're of more value than many sparrows. He reminds us that, that in the most simple things in everyday life, he's right there with us because we're walking with him. They took him with them in the boat. And he had no desire to leave their company, nor in fact does he ever spurn yours or mine. He saved us to bring us into fellowship with himself. He's always with us. It's we who at times are, are either more or less aware of it, but he's always with us. We act and feel according to our awareness, or, but not always according to the reality that he's right here with us. Nearly crushed by grief, you remember that Mary was confronted by, at Jesus' tomb when, by someone she thought at the moment was the gardener. And he asked her why she was crying and whom it was that she was seeking. And she told him how she was looking for Jesus' body. And then he simply says her name, Mary. And in an instant, her very real awareness of the one who stood before her shifted into a reality that changed everything. We ought always to speak and act as though he's right here with us because he is. When we lifted our hands and our voices today in worship, our living God was here with us. Don't let that escape you. And Christian, you are never, ever alone. Never, no matter how it feels. When you believed in Christ as your sin bearer, he entered into the boat of your life. And no matter what winds or waves or storms uh, or your own inadequacy might bring along, he's there with you. He never abandons his own. And he's already said, let us go to the other side. And he is absolutely and unfailingly faithful. Fourth, I want to notice also in verse 36, the text says that other boats were with him. Sometimes in our obedience to him, he may lead us into grave circumstances and do so so that in the very act of displaying his grace to us, he might bless others in revealing his glory. But we're, we're so self-focused, aren't we? We seldom connect our difficulties with the idea that he might be reaching out to others through the very difficulties that he's taking us through. It's one reason why we shouldn't keep all those things to ourselves. We should sometimes make them known. You remember this from 2 Corinthians 1, picking up in verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, this wonderful purpose statement, why does he comfort us in our affliction? Not just to comfort us, but so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And, and if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. 
Paul picks up that same idea later in chapter 5. He says, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Maybe, maybe you're facing some particular great challenge or trial in your life today, Christian. Don't imagine either that you're alone in it because Christ is in your boat with you. He's certainly with you nor that your trial pertains to you alone. Don't be selfish with your trials. They don't belong just to you. They belong to others. You have no idea how Jesus intends to use your trial in the lives of others. And it's good to pray about your own trials and tribulations with that in mind. It's how we are called to sanctify our sufferings and never waste them. Remember the words of the centurion who watched Jesus die? Get this. Here is this hardened Roman centurion standing by the cross, and he sees Jesus die. And it's when he sees Jesus die that he says, truly this was the Son of God. For this man, it wasn't in Jesus' preaching that he understood who Christ was. It wasn't in his miracles or in his personal interaction. It was in his death. And how we die, how we suffer is vitally important to the world around us. I remember years ago reading a part of the biography of Chuck Colson. And he said that he had gotten cancer and he was in the hospital. And as he was suffering there, he wondered kind of out loud, God, why now? I was this terrible man when I was working in the White House. I've lived a, 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 a sinful lifestyle. Now I'm converted. Now I'm out ministering to people. I've started this ministry to people that are in prison. Uh, you've been able to use me on the platform of preaching Christ in places I, I would have never dreamed. And so why do I get cancer now? And he says, you know, God doesn't speak audibly, but he said, what came into my heart at that moment was, why not you, Chuck? People need to see how Christians suffer and how we rest in him in the midst of our suffering. It doesn't mean we don't hurt. It doesn't mean the suffering is any less. But it does mean that they get to see some extraordinary reality of how he supernaturally sustains us when everything else has given way. Vitally important to our world. In Christ's weakest, most humiliating, most vulnerable state, it's that which was used to reveal the Son of Glory to him. And it's often so how his glory is revealed through us as well. How in our worst moments when we are impossibly sustained by the unseen hand of the living God. There's that deodorant commercial that used to be on the air. Never let them see you sweat was the byline. But it's the glory of our redemption that Christ orders that others do get to see us suffer at times. So that they might see him in the process. It's one of the ministries we kind of shy away from. You want a great ministry? Suffering's an incredible ministry as we offer ourselves up to him. And that's why 2 Corinthians 4 reads, but we have this treasure, you see, in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The world desperately needs to see how Christians suffer in Christ and can rest and commit ourselves into the care of our sovereign. It's extraordinary. Our fifth comes in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose. This is a principle I wish I had learned much earlier in my life, but sometimes it is in our very obedience and nearness to Christ that causes us to be plunged into the severest of trials. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so it is in this case. Simply carrying out the Lord's command to go to the other side of the lake is what found them in their life-threatening situation. They weren't in trouble because they disobeyed. They were in trouble because they obeyed. And sometimes that's the way it is. Obedience to him may well plunge you into a dark place at times. And that can be very confusing and disorienting. Contrary to some, Trials are not the indisputable mark of his displeasure and at times are even the surest evidence of his intention to display himself in unspeakable glory. I'm sure most of you know the story behind uh, Horatio Spafford penning those great words, um, uh, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever it is well, it is well my soul. You know that he wrote that as he was over, over the waters where his daughters had perished, drowned four of them. That he, he wrote those incredible, incredible words. Well, when he returned to America, the church that he was a part of, a part of the story you don't know, the church that he was a part of started to question, how is it that he had been through a fire in Chicago and had lost all his fortune? And how was it now that as he was pursuing ministry that his four of his daughters were drowned in the waters off the coast of Europe? And they began to say, we think you're under God's judgment. And they continued to hound him and his wife until he finally had to leave the church because they started shunning him and openly just declaring, if you've been through this kind of trial, Something must be wrong in your life. What a dreadful response that was. Isaiah 43, 1. But now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, 
fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. What's that imply? Well, you're going to go through some water. And, and when you go through the rivers, well, there's going to be rivers, but they'll not, they'll not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, not if you walk through the fire, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not concern, consume you. Think of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. We shouldn't call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave them, was Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Remember when they were in Babylon being thrown into the fiery furnace? And why were they thrown into the furnace? Because they were being faithful. Or Daniel, probably in his 80s or 90s when he was thrown into the lion's den. This happened near the end of his life, not when he was a young man and able to really stand up to this sort of thing, because he had served his Lord so rightly. They didn't suffer these things because of disobedience, but on account of following their Lord so carefully. You know, one of the gravest charges that God levels against his own people is found in Malachi 3. And there uh, we read Malachi 3.13, quote, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? You get that. When the mentality of, I serve God because it's the way to wheedle blessings out of him enters in, we're in a dreadful state of spiritual decline. In Job 21, the inner attitude of the wicked is revealed when they say, what profit do we get if we pray to him? Betraying that their only interest in seeking God in prayer is if he gives them material blessings in the process profit motive. And I don't know about you, but can't you find some of the seeds of that in our own hearts? I'll pray, I'll read my Bible, I'll go to church, etc. If I get the job I want, if I get the, the guy or the gal that I want to marry or, or success in business or, or the children that I want or protection from getting gravely ill or at least healing if I do get ill, and using those things kind of like a good luck charm against the unpleasantnesses of life. Oh, I may not say it verbally, but somewhere in the back of my heart or mind, there are times when I feel betrayed or let down by God when difficulties arise. And my seeking him becomes merely or mostly a method to get things back on track. After all, the unspoken but assumed contract with God is, I serve him and he makes things good for me. All the while, we completely disregard Jesus' own teaching in John 16. What does he say in verse 33 there? In the world you will have tribulation. Don't be shocked. 
or 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Which persecution may come from those around us or simply from the devil himself because he opposes all who bear the image of Christ and seek to follow him. Beloved, as we follow Christ, indeed, sometimes because we follow Christ, there will be great windstorms and life-threatening windstorms that arise. And he's still with us. Our sixth observation comes in verse 38. And he was asleep on the cushion. Uh, you probably need to know this. Uh, you, I'm sure you know this already, but just let me say it out loud. God is not very excitable. He lives in a holy imperturbability. That doesn't mean he doesn't care. It means he knows everything. He knows what he intends to do and he knows what he's about. And so he doesn't get all upset at everything. It was, it was Abraham Lincoln who said, the sun never sets on the British Empire because God can't trust them alone in the dark. Uh, God never gets up in the morning and says, oh, what did those humans do last night while I was asleep? That's not the way he exists. And we must never mistake his lack of alarm, his manifest repose and restful calm, as though it's a lack of love or, or a lack of concern or a lack of willingness to act. I believe uh, God has never known panic it's absolutely antithetical to his nature. He is in his omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence, as I said, imperturbable. You can't get him upset. Because he knows what he's about in our lives, in his providences, he's, he never needs to, to fret or react in alarm or hysteria. That's our domain. That's where we live. I'm reminded of that often quoted an anonymous poem. I love this poem. I wish I did know who wrote it. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. That's true. He has the utmost concern and care for us. At the same time, he's never frightened or shocked or dismayed at our circumstances. Because he knows what he is about in ordering everything in our life in his divine providence. That's why Jesus can say in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. 
So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He knows what he's doing. And simply because he doesn't get as excited over our problems as we do, doesn't mean he doesn't care. If you want to know the love of God, look at the cross. That brings us to verse 38 and those simple words. Do you not care? Do you not care? Galatians 5, 6 reminds us that, and this is an important connection that seldom gets explicated. Galatians 5, 6 reminds us that faith works by love. The measure of our faith is in direct proportion to our perception of his love toward us. Let me repeat that. The measure of our faith is in direct proportion to our perception of his love for us. When we're sure of how great and how perfectly he loves us, we have great faith equal to it, that he'll meet our needs. But when we have very little sense of his love, our faith likewise will be little. This is, this is why faith comes through the preaching of the gospel. It's because it's the announcement of God's great love toward us and his willingness to receive and forgive us um, based on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So, so it is that here the disciples' statement, do you not care that we are perishing, is the root behind their little faith. Uh, they questioned his care for them, his love for them. They thought that he was indifferent, and so they couldn't trust him. And we, like the disciples, uh, may want some token that he feels our emergencies as strongly as we do, the, the way we want our friends to, and we can mistake again his imperturbability for lack of concern, but this is a very, very great mistake. So the key then to great faith is, is to gain a greater and greater sense of his great love toward us. And if we don't see that in the cross, then where will we see it? How else can he possibly express it to us? That's why Calvin writes this, quote, We shall now have a full definition of faith if we say that it is a firm and sure knowledge of the divine favor toward us, founded on the truth of a free promise in Christ and revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. If we call into question God's love for men, how can we ask them to believe the gospel? That kind of preaching is counterproductive and contrary to God's own structure. You give them reason to believe his love for them and will make great inroads into seeing that faith is built in their hearts. And so Romans 17 says that this is the product of hearing the word of Christ. If our gospel, the word of Christ, doesn't contain an announcement of his great love, it fails to contain the gospel. But the truth is, how many times, no matter how many times he proves himself to us, we tend to respond to the new and the present distress as though we've never experienced his goodness before. Uh, years ago, I had written in the flyleaf of my Bible, 
uh, a, a Bible I don't use presently, but I keep it beside me on my, uh, my workstation at home. But in there, I had penned these words, that it is in the aftermath of God's great deliverances that I um, craft a new understanding of his love and grace, which I promptly forget the next time I'm in distress. That's me. Oh, maybe it's you too. The apostles don't need to see their own lack here, or don't see their own lack here, and most times neither do I. Jesus had just given them numerous parables about the kingdom, how it was going to grow, that its longevity was assured, that it would have simple beginnings, but it would end in great fruitfulness. And, but all they can see is the immediate storm. The far-off reality of the promises yet to be fulfilled were all eclipsed by the present trial. And I don't know about you, but I need the Father to forgive me for my short-sightedness that parallels theirs, my profound lack of faith in his unfailing love and his word. I was so grateful this morning that we sang about the deep, deep love of Jesus. When you know someone loves you, you trust them. It's that simple. And if you don't, if you suspect their love for you, you don't trust them. Faith works by love. And is there a more egregious charge against our God and Savior that we can make than to accuse him of not caring sufficiently for us? I get that the disciples are still on the other side of the cross at this point, but beloved, you and I have no excuse. Can we ever look at Calvary and suspect him of some form of apathy in any capacity or downright neglect? Is that even conceivable? How wicked our hearts are. And how much this is a deafening echo of Adam and Eve and how it still blocks the truth from filling our ears. In Adam, we accused him then of withholding what was best for us for some unknown and nefarious reason. That was the reasoning that the enemy used. The principal charge was the same. And the truth is, Christian, you and I, we face challenges, difficulties, hardships, and then inwardly, if not outwardly, suspect God of some defect in his love toward us. Oh, uh, may the Father just forgive us. We're so desperately wicked in this way. And not only is it a, a case of what they had already heard from Jesus' lips, what, they had, what had they already witnessed you know, go, go back and, and, and retrace the steps uh, just in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, they had seen Jesus turn the water into wine at Cana. And then he had cast out a, an unclean spirit in the synagogue in Capernaum. He healed Simon's mother-in-law of her fever. Maybe that's what caused Simon to doubt his love for him. I'm not sure. Uh, he, had, he, had, he had cleansed a leper. And then in chapter 2, he healed a paralytic and announced that he had forgiven the paralytic sins to boot. In chapter 3, he had healed the withered hand of the man in the synagogue. And in chapter 4, here we are again, peace be still. And if I were to survey my own life, or those of some of you here today, couldn't you catalog the endless ways 
and the array of times when your prayers were heard and how providence directed your steps in unexpected ways and comforts were given in times of sorrow and distress and needs were met and how his faithfulness cleansed your wounded conscience over and over, how he met you in trials and difficulties in ways you never imagined. Think what grace it was, what care it was that saw that you're here today again to enter the worship of the living God and to be reminded of how you've been delivered from your sin and shamed through the blood of Christ. Here he is manifesting his love for us in this very moment and I have no doubt that some of us right at this very moment are doubting that very love. Think what grace it was to make you a new creature by grace and to indwell you by his spirit and and to be supported by the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit and interceded for by Jesus himself who is ever at the right hand of the Father and living in the promises of the, of the resurrection yet to come and eternal life with him. And will we then suspect him today of some failure on our behalf? or maybe some short supply in the future because the news constantly tells us we're on the brink of destruction at any moment. Maybe you're not a Christian here today and in your heart, if not out loud, at some time or another, you've concluded that God's never done anything for you. You grew up neglected or abused. You've suffered psychologically or physically or financially or in every way imaginable. And you've, you've known abandonment and you've known hatred and misunderstanding, prejudice and rejection, failure, injustice, and a host of other woes. And I don't for a moment want to try and minimize those in any way. I have no simple platitude to wipe them away or to make them less than they really are. But bear with me for just one moment if you're not a Christian here today. I want you to see something in addition to all of what you may have suffered in life so far. You're here today because even those who may have abused and neglected you, God still somehow used to preserve your life. They fed you. And they clothed you and you got here today and as wicked and as inexcusable as their other actions may have been when you were utterly helpless in birth somehow perhaps even horribly inadequately you were fed you were clothed and against all odds sustained and God has preserved you up to this very minute that you might hear the truth of the gospel and by faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on Calvary come to the saving knowledge of his grace for you. He has seen to it you're here to hear the gospel one more time. Oh, he cares for you. That you might be born again by his spirit and granted eternal life and begin the trajectory toward eternal felicity with him and be adopted into the very family of God and have the living eternal hope guaranteed you. No matter what else anyone ever did to you or did not do for you, Christ has brought you here today so that you might repent and believe. He's not abandoned you. He's not abused you. He's loved you 
with an everlasting love that has the power to redeem every one of those past sins for your good and his glory. And so I plead with you, come to him today. Come so that you might have salvation from the just wrath of God that you deserve through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Well, our time's gone. Let me, let me close with these brief reflections then on, on prayer, how this, all that we've looked at applies to prayer. And if you've got your notes there, I'm going to fill in the blanks for you. First is we often pray faithless, panic-filled prayers because we often pray forgetting his stupendous love seen most profoundly in the cross. Because of his love, Christ not only deals with the circumstances of our lives, but also with the causes. And we have to be ready for him to deal with us in our sin if we desire him to deal with what sin has produced. He never deals with either with us either in a vacuum, nor does he forgive us without mercy upon our suffering. And he doesn't merely relieve our suffering without dealing with the sin that brought our suffering to pass. But how often our prayers are not rooted in this stupendous love. Second, we often pray poorly because we pray forgetting his previous graces. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 42, 6, prays, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Now, Jordan would make sense there because that was where they crossed over into uh, the promised land when they were coming in years earlier. And Mount Hermon would make sense that he remembers him from Mount Hermon because those are the headwaters of the Jordan and that was always typological of God's great blessing toward them. But Mizar, David says, I remember him, my soul is cast down and therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Mount Mizar isn't mentioned anywhere else in scripture. <clears throat> We have no information on Mount Mizar. What's being said there? Well, God had met him there at some point. We don't know how. We don't know what. But, but David's saying, and when my soul is cast down, I go back and remember those secret places where you've met me. Nobody else knows anything about. I'm cast down, so I need to go back and remember the great things you've done for me. In the past, like the old song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Horrible tune, great theology. Third, we often pray poorly because we pray forgetting his glorious person. In the boat, they just wanted him to help them row. He wanted to show them his glory. We want far too little. And the miracle of it all? Lord over creation itself, help us row? No. He says, how about peace be still? I think that's a little better. And lastly, we often pray faithless, foolish, sometimes accusatory, panic-filled prayers. And still he hears. <laughs> Miracle of miracles, what a God of grace he is. 
Their faith was small indeed, perhaps minuscule, and sometimes mine is too, maybe yours is, but that's no hindrance to him. He still responded. As poor and as misshapen as their faith was, he still responded. What an amazing God he is. Listen to the words of John Rogers in 1634. Weak faith is true faith, as precious though not so great as strong faith. The same Holy Ghost, the author, the same gospel, the instrument. If it never proves great, yet weak faith shall still save. For, its interest, uh, for it interests us in Christ and makes him and all his benefits ours. For it is not the strength of our faith that saves, but the truth of our faith. Nor the weakness of our faith that condemns, but the want of faith. For the least faith laid hold on Christ, and so will save. Neither are we saved by the worth or quantity of our faith, but by Christ who has laid hold on by weak faith as well as strong. Just as a weak hand can put meat into the mouth and shall feed and nourish the body as well as if it were a strong hand, seeing the body is not nourished by the strength of the hand, but by the goodness of the meat. He still hears, beloved. 